0: You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. I love being here with you people. I do. I love this church. Thankful for each of you. Um, It is a blessing to be here to bring uh, God's word to you. Um, And so uh, I'm sure for most of you, like me, I love trees. I love trees. I just got back from the Pacific Northwest. I was um, in Oregon, and I did a wedding in Oregon, and we were in Seaside, Oregon, you guys ever been to the Pacific Northwest, it's incredible. I've never seen trees like that in my life. And I'm guessing for many of you, you probably have trees in your life that mean a lot to you. Maybe a tree in your parents' front yard. Or uh, the pine trees in Georgia. I had a friend in college who lived in Georgia, and these pine trees in Georgia, man, they're so straight. They grow to the sky. Uh, the tree next to the gazebo where I asked my wife to marry me. We all have trees that are important to us. And they're beautiful to look at, right? Just a quick plug. Maybe slow down your life and stare at a tree for a little while. I think, I think it'll benefit you. Uh, I think so much of the beauty of the world just kind of flies past our face without us really recognizing the beauty of the world in which we live. So maybe take a minute today and look at a beautiful tree, especially during the fall, right, as the trees are changing. Take a second to look. Uh, and then, so uh, we're walking through the Bible, as Scott said earlier, and we come to this part in Genesis chapter 3 where there's two very important trees in the garden. Two very important trees. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've started this journey through Genesis with the creation of the world, that the that God sang the song of creation, and created this beautiful world in which for Adam and Eve to live. And he places two trees in the garden, right? The tree of life and the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I almost titled my sermon, The Theology of Trees. And then I wanted to spend the whole time just talking about trees in the Bible, but There's a lot of trees in the Bible. There's no way you could possibly cover it in one Sunday. But today, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be where the story goes off the rails. God has created this perfect world for the pinnacle of his creation to live in, and they make an awful choice that has implications for all of us and for the rest of time. So, back to these trees. (laughs) Look at, if you will, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 with me. That's where we're going to start. Then we'll work into Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter two, verse nine. And it says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And look again at Genesis uh, chapter two, 15 through 17. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So every day, Adam and Eve were welcome to eat from the tree of life. This tree that God had put into the garden was implanted with his very own life that as they ate from it, they experienced the life of God and it gave to them eternal life. We know this because at the end of chapter three, when they get kicked out of the garden, God puts an angel to guard the garden so they can't get back to the tree and live forever, which is actually a good grace from God, right? Because can you imagine living forever in this world just in sin and destruction? No, this is a grace from God. So we're not able to eat from it, but we know that they could every day in their sinlessness, come to this tree and eat of it. But on their way to this tree of life, they pass by another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree represents humanity's ability to do what is right in their own eyes. Adam and Eve in the garden have no concept of evil, right? There is no sin. Sin does not exist in the garden. They don't have a concept of it. They live in perfection, walking with God in the cool of the day. Experiencing nothing but his grace in their place in the garden as the beloved of God. Sounds good, right? <laughs> Sounds really good. They are restricted from one thing. Only one thing. They're restricted from one thing. Don't eat from the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is where we meet the serpent in chapter three. So, first point this morning: the temptation. And we're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, and hopefully it will be up on the screen for you as well. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Loincloths. So, just off the bat, this is a familiar story to many of you, right? If you grew up in the church, you've you've heard this story of the temptation. It's always what's the fruit always symbolized as? It's an apple. Is there anywhere in the Bible it says it's an apple? No, it's just a fruit. I'm I'm hoping that in the Garden of Eden on this tree, the fruit looked cooler than an apple. Not that there's anything cool wrong with an apple, but I'm guessing it looked different. But there are a couple things that are worth noting here. Uh, Do you notice that in this text that there are two temptations? Look again. Look at the back half of verse 1 again. It says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And do you see that Eve is able to refute this temptation? She emphatically tells the serpent that not only is she not allowed to eat of the tree, she isn't even allowed to touch it. Because upon doing so, she will die. Now, look at the second part of the temptation in verse four. Uh, It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See how crafty this serpent is here? Initially, the serpent goes after Eve's mind. I really appreciate Scott's prayer just a minute ago that even this sermon this morning would make a transition from our mind into our hearts and in our spirits, because this is something that Eve really misses, right? In her mind, she is able to refute what the serpent says. He says, hey, did God actually say you can't eat of that? And she says, yeah. Yeah, God said I'm not allowed to touch it. it says, don't touch it, you're going to die. But then the serpent goes after Eve's understanding of the heart of God for her. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, the question from the serpent is, does God really love you? Eve, God is holding out on you. This temptation reveals a deep-set fear in Eve's heart. And she begins to question, does God love me? Is he keeping something from me? And it's under this temptation that Eve buckles. Do you see the difference? The serpent goes after Eve's mind, her memory, right? And she's able to refute it. She's like, no, 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 no. God really did say that. I heard him say it. She's able to refute it. What does what the serpent go after next? Her heart and her understanding of God. And isn't this true for us? In our minds, we might have all the right answers for when temptation comes, but we give in to temptation. We give in to temptation when we stop believing that the boundaries God has given to us are for our good and that God has given them to us because he loves us. And so just a quick embarrassing example from my own life. Uh, on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, um, this, is, uh, this isn't my full-time gig here at New City Church, so I'm a, I'm a full-time teacher at a school, and then I'm here uh, part-time. And so, you know, preparing a sermon is a lot of work. Uh, and when you work a full-time job and you have three little kids, and it was just a busy week. And so I got home from school. And I was sitting out on my glorious back deck, and the weather's beautiful. I have my Bible. I'm like, I'm going to get some stuff done. So I send my two daughters and my son down to the backyard, and I tell my son, Bentley, I need you to watch your sisters so I can get some stuff done. My wife was, like, cooking dinner, getting stuff done. It's like, I need you to do this. So I'm sitting on the deck, and I hear Emma start screaming underneath the deck. Emma is, like, 18 months old. She's a little, little lady, okay? And I... I'm like, hey, Bentley, what's going on? And I look inside the house, and there is my son in the fridge getting his 12th snack of the day, just snacking, okay? just can't stop getting snacks. And so in that moment, in that moment, my anger just rises within me, right? I'm just so, and I go in, and I say some embarrassing things that I'm not going to repeat here. And I yell at my son, and I tell him to get outside and to go take care of his sisters, and you can think that like, oh, well, that guy has a temper, but really what, what happened is when the moment of temptation came, my fear was overwhelming, and I was afraid of two things. One, I was afraid that I wasn't going to have enough time to work on this sermon and that you guys were going to think I was a loser <laughs> and not smart, as Ryan Pelton would say, is that too real? <laughs> I don't know. but. Uh, I'm worried about my perception by you. I want you to think that I spent time on this. I want you to think that I put effort into it. And then I'm terribly afraid, like all parents are, that something bad is going to happen to my children, right? This fear in the moment, I know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I know that I'm called to be gentle and patient and kind and self-sacrificing. But in that moment, my fear kicks in and I act irrationally, and I yell at a six-year-old kid, (laughs) right? This, This fear, guys, do we ever make good decisions when we are afraid? No, we do not think well. We do not act rightly. And Eve is attacked by the serpent at the base level of her heart, and he attacks her with fear. Does God really love you? Does he really have what's best for you in mind? No, 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 no. God, God, uh, God's trying to keep something from you. And guys, the temptation is super, super crafty, right? Uh, He says to her, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Hey guys, how many times have people told you that you need to be like God? I mean, like all the time growing up, right? You need to be, hey, you need to be more like Jesus. Like the serpent comes to Eve with this lie wrapped in with some truth. This sounds good like all sin does in the moment, right? It looks good. It's enticing to our eyes. It looks good to eat, and we eat of it, and what do we experience? Nothing but death. What we thought would bring us life only brings us into slavery, and we find ourselves acting irrationally when we don't believe that the boundaries that God has set are for our good. Eve stops believing that that this boundary, this one boundary that God had placed of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not for her good, but for God's own self-aggrandizement of his own pride. And so she's gonna buck against the system and eat of the fruit, and she does. And so just like that for us, guys, two trees are placed before us every day. We have the opportunity to eat from the tree of life or we can eat from the tree of our own desire. So Eve takes of the fruit and give some to Adam, and they both eat. And through this act, sin enters the world. Nothing would ever be the same. We have the first murder in the very next chapter, right? Cain kills Abel, followed by God flooding the earth to deal with human wickedness, followed by wars and famines, hurricanes and pandemics, black mold and deadly mosquitoes, cancer and death. But even worse than all of those things is that this sin would separate us from God. God and his holiness cannot dwell where sin is. The world in this moment feels irreconcilable, lost, completely lost. Adam and Eve have blown it. It's over, man. Game's over. But God does not leave us without hope. Amen? is that such good news? Oh, man, it's such good news. God does not leave us without hope. And so that leads to point number two, the promise. So Adam and Eve feel the weight of their sin, and they are filled with shame, right? What's the first act that Adam and Eve do upon learning that they're sinful, that they've messed up? They go and they try to cover themselves, and they try to hide from God, which is just ironically funny, right, that these people are like, yeah, yeah. Let's go run into the forest and somehow God won't find us. Come on, guys. We, and we can laugh. It's like laughing at Israel when we read in the Old Testament, we're like oh, dumb Israelites could never figure it out. And then we're just like living the exact same way, like doing the same stuff. We just have different idols. Our idols look different. So Adam and Eve feel the weight of their sin. They're filled with shame. They make clothes from themselves, from leaves, and attempt to hide from God in the garden. And of course, God finds them. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11, it says, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So we already got some blaming going on here. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Nobody's taking blame yet, right? It's everybody else's fault. Man, how often do we do that? I got mad at my son, not because I have an anger problem sometimes, but because my son is annoying, <laughs> right? We, we deflect onto other people. Uh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Uh, let your imagination run wild with that. What did the snake look like before this? Is uh, he standing up? Did he have legs? Oh, it's fascinating. These, these texts are, there's a lot in here. Uh, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. And this, guy's, this verse, Genesis 3.15, is one that you could, you could spend a lot of time focusing on here. It says, I will put, this is God talking to the serpent, right? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Verse 15 is one of the most hopeful verses in the Bible. Now, it's kind of shrouded in a metaphor, right? What's this stuff about heel and bruising and heads? But this is what what Jesus is getting at. It's sometimes called the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's the overarching theme of the whole Scriptures. And do you see what's being said here? Satan is being addressed by God, and God makes this incredible promise in the midst of this terribly dark moment that there is going to be one, an offspring of the woman, who is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. There is going to be one who comes that is going to take care of human sin. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1, this is a a verse you hear a lot, especially at Christmas time. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There is a new tree of life coming one that will grow up from the seemingly dead stump of human wickedness and evil, a tree that will grow and offer us again a way to be with God, to experience his presence and to be able to be with him forever. But look again at verse 15. It says that uh, this one, this offspring of the woman that is heel will be bruised. What does that mean? What does it mean that his heel is going to be bruised? We can understand that this one who's coming is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to be Jesus, the Messiah, right? Who's going to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserve so we could go free. Crushing sin, death, and the devil. But how is his heel going to be bruised? It's going to experience death, physical death, separation from his father for the first time in eternity Uh, Listen to Isaiah 53.5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, He he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds or by his wounds, we are healed. Christ is hung on a tree experiencing physical death, and for the first time ever, a separation from God the Father. Jesus experiences the worst that this world has to offer. He bears in his body the marks of Genesis 3.15. His heel was bruised in the wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side. But guys, what's more important, your head or your heel? Your head. His heel is bruised. And someday, when you look upon Jesus, you will see him in his bruised heel state. You will see the wounds in his hands. You will see the wound in his side. He bears in his body the mark of what he's done for us. For some reason within Christian faith, we have come up with this very disembodied Jesus that is some kind of like flowy angel. I don't know what I'm doing with my arms here, but it's like a flowy angel kind of guy. No, you will meet a physical presence in Jesus and you will be able to put your fingers in the holes in his hands and in his side. His heel will be bruised. Genesis 3.15 uh, sets this up for us. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of our faith as followers of Jesus. We do not believe in a God who remains separate from us in our suffering. From the very beginning, there is this promise in Genesis 3.15 that one would enter into our broken world and crush the head of the serpent, securing freedom and life for us forever. (laughs) This is from the very jump, man. It's from the start. But it would come at a cost. It would cost Jesus his very life. So Jesus, in his life, always picks the right tree. He always picks the tree of life to eat from. He enjoys the presence of God. He dwells securely in who he is and and what he was called to do. You can think back to the temptation of Satan, right? When, When Satan comes to tempt Jesus... Jesus withstands those temptations and every other temptation. Well, why? So that he could be holy, so that he could be a holy sacrifice for us. Because guess who's not holy? You and I. We've messed it up, man, right? We, and we feel the weight of this. And this isn't me up here, you know, just trying to remind you how awful you are. You already know. <laughs> and what's worse is that God knows better than you do how awful you are. And man, this is one of the most beautiful parts of the scriptures is that God sees all of you, sees every part of you, and he still loves you. Such hopeful news for us this morning. Nothing is hidden from God. i are not hiding anything. He sees you. Uh, Matthew chapter five, Jesus is starting the Sermon on the Mount in verse one, it says, and seeing the crowds, he went up and he sat down and he taught them. He saw them and he sees you. And this is the, this scandal of the gospel, right, that you are more deeply flawed than you could ever know, but you are more loved by God than you could possibly ever imagine. And that's the good news of the gospel. And it is through his life, through Jesus' life and death, that we are welcomed back into the life of God. We're welcomed back into this life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes your sin upon himself. The very promise from Genesis 3.15 is going to be woven throughout all of the Bible to lead to Jesus. And he's going to pay your price. Jesus on every page is not some cute tagline we came up for this sermon series. It really is the story of the whole Bible, that in the darkest moments of human existence, Christ is present, moving and working. He is there at the beginning of creation, bringing order to chaos, and he is in the garden dealing with the fallout of human sin, not through abandoning his creation, but promising that one day he would come to crush the head of the serpent and restore us to Eden. And we know how the story ends, don't we? (laughs) He really does it. Israel's long-awaited Messiah is the God-man, Jesus. He really did what he said he was going to do. This is the source of all of our hope. Amen? This is the source of all of our hope, that Jesus fulfills the promise that God makes here in Genesis 3.15, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. The head of the serpent has been crushed through Christ's death and resurrection but we also know that we live in the already, but not yet, right? We have been saved, but have we experienced resurrection yet? No. And do we live in a fallen world? Yeah, we feel the weight of this, right? I guess see these like horrific pictures from Florida, massive hurricanes <laughs> ripping people's houses off the ground. I mean, it's just it's awful. Or you, you know, scroll the news for five minutes and just realize how bad things can be and how bad things are because of human wickedness and sin. But our hope is that as we grow in love for Jesus, that we are better able to withstand the temptations of the devil, that when he comes to us to tempt us, that we can say no. Ah, oh, man, when we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and we experience his goodness... That should fill us with a desire to be able to recognize garbage, right? That if, like, so I, I, was, I fell in love with my wife, like, in high school. Well, fall in love is a loose term here. I don't know what that is. I was 16 years old. But uh, I was really into this girl in high school, and uh, I wanted to be with her all the time, right? I wanted to spend time with her. I was a little weird. She didn't like me for, like, a whole year, and so I would find her outside of each of her, I memorized her class schedule, and I would come grab her backpack and carry it for her, and <laughs> miracle of miracles, it worked. <laughs> she couldn't say no, but if I loved this girl, I wanted to be with her, and so how ridiculous would it be for me to walk down the hallway and like smack her in the back of the head with a textbook? Would that be good? Would that, would that help our relationship grow? No, I saw the beauty of who she was, and I wanted to be near her. And so anything that would have put any kind of block between that, any kind of separation between us, it's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want that. When we see Jesus as the ultimate beauty in the world, man, when you look outside, again, back to these trees, if you go stare at a tree and you think about how beautiful it is, or if you look at the pinnacle of God's creation and you look at these lovely people here, and you look at your children and your grandchildren, and you think about the goodness of God to you and the beauty of God, there you will be able to recognize garbage for what it really is and say, man, I don't want that. I want Jesus. I want to be close to him. I want to feel his presence. I don't want that. We're able to say no when those temptation comes. So just a couple of points of application here this morning. Um, For how does Genesis 3 impact the way that we actually live this week? What does this mean for us as we step into our jobs tomorrow? As as we go back to being engineers and nurses and teachers and moms and dads, what does this mean for us? The boundaries, this is number one, the boundaries that God places on our lives are for our good. The boundaries that God has placed on our lives are for our good God is not just concerned with you saying a prayer when you're five years old, not screwing up too much, and then going to heaven when you die. That is not, if you read the Bible, your life on this earth matters a lot, and the way that you live matters. The boundaries that God has placed on our lives are for your flourishing and good. They're for your good. Right? If you go read the Sermon on the Mount, you read the teachings of Jesus, hey, don't, don't lust after a woman because you committed adultery in your heart. Adultery is not good for families. It's not good for us. Divorce is bad. We don't. Need, everyone recognizes that. Hey, don't hate your brother because if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. No one gets done with 15 years in the Ku Klux Klan and is like, oh, man, those are the best years of my life. Evil strips us of our identity as humans. We are made in the image of God and made to bear that image out in the world that we live in. The boundaries, when you read God's word and you read of who you are called to be, this is coming from the best advice giver ever. It's coming from the mouth of God. And he made you and he knows you. And so the boundaries that he sets for you are for your good. And when we stop believing that they're for our good and we start believing that God is holding out on us, we find ourselves back in Genesis chapter three in the same shoes as Eve. We say, no, I'm gonna do it my own way. I'm gonna get what I want. The boundaries that God places on our lives are for our good and for our flourishing. Number two, when we fall into sin, because we will, (laughs) we do not have to walk in shame. Shame does not come from God. So remember back, what is the first thing that Adam and Eve do once they've sinned? They make clothes for themselves and they hide because they were ashamed. When we repent from sin, we do so from a heart that knows that we are deeply loved by God. Hear that again. When we repent from sin, we do so from a heart that knows we are deeply loved by God. We repent with remorseful hearts for the sin that we've done that is an infraction against the holiness of God, right? We carry the weight of that sin. But if the thought, theology that you constantly preach to yourself is how worthless you are, then you should read Genesis 1 and 2 again. <laughs> Go back and read the creation narrative of who made you. Whose image are you made in? You are not called to spend your whole life talking about how worthless you are. Again, we know this, and does God know it? Yes, he knows that we don't have anything to bring to him. We don't have anything to give to him, but are you made in the image of God, and are you deeply loved by God? Yes, when we repent from sin, we do so from a heart that knows that we are deeply loved by God. Romans chapter two, it says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Our repentance is driven by looking at the goodness and kindness of Jesus. We recognize our own frailties, and then we get our mind off of ourselves and onto Jesus. Thank you, God, that I am not saved based on how good of a job I do today. Thank you, God, that there's nothing that I can do to work my way back to you. Can't do it. Can't get, I can't, get, can't make myself right with you. Praise God for Jesus who did it for me. We come to repentance knowing that we are deeply loved by God. And then lastly, we take heart for Christ has overcome the world. And what began with the tree in the Garden of Eden will end with us walking in the streets of the new Jerusalem, shaded by the branches of a new tree of life. Look at these words from Revelation chapter 22. We're jumping ahead all the way to the end here. <laughs> Says, and the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of this street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. What began with a tree will end with a tree and we will bask in the shade of the tree of life as we feast forever on the goodness and the glory of God. In perfection, no more temptation, no more sin perfect communion with God back to Eden. Let your heart long for that this morning. Let your heart long for a day when you'll be free from sin and dwell with God forever. And every week uh, when we come to this table, we come uh, to have a physical representation of what we believe that Christ has done for us, that his body was broken for us and that his blood was spilled for us. And because of that, we have a way to know God that all of the sins that we've committed, they're wiped out in the avalanche of God's grace. And so this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, New City, we we come forward and we break off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. And there's allergy-free options in the middle or cups that you can take if you're not comfortable with that. Um, And so there'll be people on either side to serve this to you. Uh, But as we take of this, um, sometimes along with everything that we do, uh, we can be, get so into the habit of doing something that we kind of stop to reflect upon what we are doing. Uh, so, if it's all right with you guys, we're going to, well, I don't care if it's all right with you or not. Um, we're just going to take a moment before I pray. And uh, I just ask for you to think about are there things in your life that unrepentant sin, things that you need to deal with before God to make our hearts right with Him? Knowing, guys, that as we come to repentance, That you are not ever shunned by god he does not shame you he does not guilt you but he welcomes you back with open arms so we're just going to take a moment and then i'll pray